my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello, my name is Eric, your host of Our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. Today I am joined by Dr. Sheikh Treore. Dr. Treore is a Nigerian Mauritanian, apologies if I did not pronounce that correctly, health advisor and entrepreneur with over 15 years experience working in public health and development. His career has taken him to more than 22 countries across Western Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa. Dr. Trey Ore has worked as a health advisor for several agencies, providing expertise and policy solutions, training, and program design to improve health access. He's also a senior medical advisor for Go Africa Network, Inc., a nonprofit advancing the awareness and socioeconomic development of Africa and African diaspora populations through local and international outreach initiatives. Greetings, Dr. Chore, and welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. You have great credentials that I've just read. I'm probably not reading all of your accomplishments, but yeah, it's really great to have you here on this platform. How's your week been? It's my pleasure to be on your podcast. I've had a busy week. I live in Lagos. It's a pretty busy city, but I enjoy the city. and I enjoy the busy life. And yeah, so far, so good. It's been a good week. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I know Abuja is the capital, but Lagos is the largest city in Nigeria. Yes, Lagos is the largest city in Nigeria and probably Africa. And Abuja is the capital city of the country. How would you describe Lagos? It's impossible to describe Lagos. It's gigantic, first of all. It's uh, nearly 20 million people. So think about New York times two Mm -hmm. or Los Angeles times three. (laughs) It's huge, very populated, but also incredibly dynamic. People wake up at four. At 5 a.m., you have buses and bikes everywhere. And it's a very dynamic and bustling city. Okay. It's also very chaotic. It's a nightmare to navigate the, the traffic jams and the poorly organized transport system. And sometimes I wonder how people navigate the city. It's real chaos sometimes. It sounds like what I've read about Japan as far as being a very bustling city, or excuse me, Tokyo. Oh, uh, I've been to Tokyo and I cannot compare. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> Tokyo is very organized extremely well organized with very disciplined people people obey traffic lights in tokyo not here Ah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've also read that lagos is uh, like a huge financial center one of the largest ones in the world yes definitely for west africa it's definitely a top economic financial city maybe johannesburg beats lagos in terms of you know, organized finance, financial strength. But Lagos is definitely up there in the top five in Africa. Definitely have to do more reading on my end. (laughs) (laughs) Or visiting. (laughs) Or visiting, exactly. You were so right about that. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you're binational. Did you grow up in Nigeria? Yes, I'm a binational and probably more. <laughs> it's complicated. I was actually born in France. My mom is Nigerian. And my father is Mauritanian. But I never really lived in France because my parents left when I was four or five years old and they moved to Mauritania. So I grew up in Mauritania. I did my primary school, secondary school in Mauritania. Then I lived in other countries, but I'm binational Mauritanian and Nigerian. Now, what's the capital of Mauritania? Capital of Mauritania is Nouakchott. Nouakchott. That's where I grew up. Now, what language is spoken in Mauritania? In Mauritania, okay, that's an interesting question because when I was growing up, the official language was French and then Arabic was added to it. And then now it's Arabic, just Arabic. But you have national African languages like Wolof, Soninke, Fulani. So I would say five, six languages in Mauritania. I remember it's a small population. Mauritania doesn't have more than 3 million people. One side of me is from a small country and the other side is from a very big country. So. <laughs> How many languages do you speak? Right now, English and French, and then I'm losing my Arabic, but I used to speak. And my father's language is Soninke, and I speak a bit of Soninke and a bit of Wolof and a bit of Fulani. Fulani is like everywhere in West Africa. It's one of the most spoken languages in West Africa. And then Wolof is Senegal and Mauritania. Well, it's just great to hear, especially me coming from the U.S. where we speak English and some would debate how well we speak that. <laughs> Nigeria has been able to keep so many languages. That's really great to hear. Yes. Remember that English, French, these are languages that were brought in by colonization from Europeans. So you tend to have those languages spoken by people who went to school, to formal education. But a lot of people have not been to school and formal education. So you still have vibrant African languages everywhere. It's great to hear. Yeah. Speaking of, like, you forwarded me your headshot when we initially connected. And I really like what you're wearing in that. It's just a really great look. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I was wearing an outfit from my favorite designer. His name is Alpha D. And it's basically a tunic but it has a hood and it's made of silk and cotton. It's an outfit from a tribe called the Berber. I mean, they have different names. So Tuaregs are found in Mali and Niger Republic. And then the hat is a Hausa hat. Hausa is one of the largest tribes in Nigeria and West Africa. Mm. That hat is a typical Hausa. I like wearing African designers, traditional and modern. That picture is a, is a good example of that. What we know about the continent is so much more rich and diverse than what we realize as far as, you know, language and fashion and food and all that stuff. The U.S. is actually a paradox because I lived in the U.S. for about three years mm -hmm. and I was actually surprised how the whole world is there. And yet Americans know so little about other places. Yeah. The media doesn't really tell you much. It's an interesting paradox. So in the intro, I listed some of your professional credentials, but what is your educational background? I actually studied medicine. I trained as a medical doctor. I started in Senegal. I started my medical school in Senegal. Halfway through, I had to move. 
that's a long story, but I had to move. So I went to finish my medical studies in Ivory Coast, still in West Africa. After concluding my medical degree, I wanted to do some studies in public health and I moved to London. Initially, I moved to the US. I moved to Chicago thinking I could continue studying there. It didn't quite work out, but I found admission at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and I moved. I moved to London. When I was there, I did a master's in public health and I did some work in London in the public health system over there. And then from then, I started traveling, doing more international public health work. Now, when you mean public health, you are a medical doctor. Does that mean education? It's interesting. I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't want to be your typical doctor working in hospitals. I never really wanted to be a clinical doctor. So I chose to work in public health, which is basically working at population level. So working for ministries of health or working for international health organizations, what I do is design policies or also education. So my first job, for example, was health promotion. So I was designing health education programs on HIV when I was in London, producing information on leaflets and websites, various communication tools to educate certain groups. So that's part of public health. Public health is very wide, so from health promotion to health policy to health service administration. Now, you were in the U.S., in Chicago. What brought you to the U.S.? I was looking for a public health school, and I thought, go to America, because one of my best friends from Mauritania was in Chicago. And I thought, okay, let me try. But it didn't work out because I didn't actually find public health school that was looking at international public health. The schools were very U.S. health focused, and also they were very expensive. I changed my mind and I found more affordable education in Europe. And that's how I ended up in London. So it seems like that you're out, if I'm understanding correctly, in your professional life and your public life. Yeah, I would say. Although, you know, being out is a constant process. You have to repeat it a few times over and over again but yeah generally um how did you come about that decision because my apologies in advance but from what i've read nigeria is not on the same level at this point how was that or how is that for you being an out gay professional Mm. i wouldn't say that it was a decision okay i think i was forced to come out when i was in london i basically got involved in activism. I joined a small group of black gay men and I was active. And I think I wrote a story once online. It was about being queer and being in exile. Yeah, and then a sister of mine saw the story and she told another sister and they told my mother and then I got confronted and I said, yes, it's true. (laughs) So it happened in that funny way. This happened 20 years ago. I found that It was a better option for me just to be truthful. But generally speaking, living in Nigeria, because of the nature of my work, it's not so much a challenge because I work pretty much from home. It's not like I have a team of people that I work with. People rarely ask me about my sexuality. Mm -hmm. But when they ask, sometimes I tell them. Sometimes I don't. (laughs) I have to be careful (laughs) who I tell. But generally speaking, you're right, it's quite difficult in Nigeria. 
when did you become aware of that part of yourself? That's an interesting question. I wasn't aware. I think I was pretty confused throughout my teenage years. All I know is that I loved wrestling. You remember you were trying to pronounce Nuakshot? Yes. That's where I grew up. So Nuakshot is close to the Atlantic. I grew up going to the beach all the time, and I loved wrestling on the beach with other friends. Many years later, I realized, oh, I think I know why I liked wrestling. And even losing, I loved losing. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was in my late teens that I realized that it was about sexuality. But of course, it took a while to realize what it meant. It was pretty terrifying because you couldn't tell anyone. As a bookworm, I don't know if you know that expression, bookworm. Oh, yeah. That was one of my titles. (laughs) I got interested in reading books on sexuality. My dad's library was full of books on uh, sexuality. So I managed to read and find explanations about myself just through reading. I don't think I met any queer person until I was in my mid-20s or late 20s. So it's pretty much something I knew about myself, but it was hidden and I didn't really have experiences meeting other queer persons until very late. We all have a story to tell around that one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you come from a family of medical professionals? No, 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 no. I would say I come from a family of activists and politicians. <laughs> Because both my mom and dad are politicians, and they were pretty radical in Mauritania, ending up in jail a few times because of their beliefs. You know, a lot of African countries are not very comfortable with opposition politics. So I grew up in a family of activists. My dad is still a politician, but my mom became more of a businesswoman. Sounds like that activism is is in your DNA (laughs) and what you're doing. Uh, maybe. <laughs> so what sparked your interest in the medical profession? Mm. I got into it a bit by accident. I loved biology when I was in secondary school. I loved life sciences in general. So I had options when it was time to go to university. I had three options. Medicine was one of them. And I just said, yeah, I like medicine. But more from the intellectual side, you know, like I loved the subjects, physiology and biology and chemistry, and I kind of love those topics. But when it came to working as a doctor, that was a different story. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And then how did you transition into HIV awareness? When I finished medical school, I wanted to go into public health generally. And then so in the 90s, HIV started becoming a big public health topic in West Africa. I was kind of curious about maybe one day working in HIV. So after my master's degree in the UK, first thing I did was to just go and volunteer for HIV service organizations. Mm-hmm. Just by volunteering for a few months, I really developed an interest in working in the HIV field. And I was offered my first job when I was in London for the largest HIV service provider in the UK. Yeah, so I joined, and since then, I've never really left HIV work. It's always been a topic of public health that I was very passionate about. For countries in West Africa, Nigeria, other countries, how is it for one to receive either education or or medical advice or medications? Well, health access is difficult for 
most Nigerians. Our health is still uh, pretty much a luxury. So I would say that people have access to very basic healthcare through the government system. A lot of private sector hospitals are around, but health is expensive. It's not easily accessible. Infectious diseases like HIV, mm-hmm. you do have a lot of aid. For example, the US government has a huge HIV program in Nigeria. So they fund, I don't know, 70% of the drugs for HIV work is funded by the US in Nigeria. And in other countries, you'll find similar scenarios. So a lot of the HIV medicines are free because of aid, because it's given to the countries through very, very large programs, even outside Africa. If it wasn't for aid and support of countries like the USA, uh, I think a lot of people would not be able to access HIV medications. That's good to hear. Most people take it for granted because it's free. And a lot of people don't even know that it's a gift from another country. Yeah. When you talk about the healthcare system, it sounds a little bit similar to the U.S. where, you know, it's better to have the private insurance. It's very expensive here. You know, my awareness at this point, because I was, you know, most recently in Europe between Sweden and the U.K., and from my understanding, their public health is much more accessible and better than what we have in the U.S. So it sounds like Nigeria's got some similarities there. Well, I would say it's far worse here because, first of all, there are not many doctors. Remember, we are 200 million people here in Nigeria. The ratio of doctors to population is very low. Typically, you have a country like the U.S., you have a doctor for 3,000 people. Here, you have a doctor for 30,000. Okay. Nigeria is a bit of a federal system, a bit like the U.S., so we have states you have states where you have like 10 doctors for a population of 3 million people. So it's far worse here. Like there's a lot of parts of the country where you don't have doctors. Like people have to travel really far to get decent healthcare. And even when they get it, it's not cheap. Now, as far as when one is seeking out HIV information or medications, is your sexual orientation something that comes up when you are seeking advice? Not at all, actually. Well, I would say it's changing now. But for many, many years, HIV in Africa, in many sub-Saharan African countries, was very much a heterosexual issue. You know, like children who were born infected during the pregnancy of their mother. Okay. So it was seen like that for many, many years. A lot of the work I do is to convince governments to pay more attention to groups that are more at risk, so like gay men or sex workers or people who inject drugs, because those populations were abandoned, like not really considered within public health programs. So now the perception is slowly changing, but we don't have that association between HIV being a a gay disease or anything. It's not mainstream. So that's not a challenge one has to... uh... Yes, and then the majority of people living with HIV in Nigeria are women, So yeah, it doesn't have that association. Thank you for that, yeah, I wasn't sure. You know, kind of getting to, say, being gay or in the LGBT community in Nigeria, I bring this up because I saw the Netflix series, Sex Education, Mm -hmm. and there was a storyline where one of the characters came to Nigeria and they kind of presented it as an underground life, the LGBT community in Nigeria. How does one 
like say me if I discover or you know become aware of myself as a gay man and I'm Nigerian how does one discover that community or that network of people <laughs> yeah that sounds like a project <laughs> sounds <laughs> <Yeah>. like a... <laughs> I did present yeah, it that because, way didn't I? <laughs> yeah yeah because yeah, I do ask the question myself because I moved to Nigeria 10 years ago and for me, discovering the community was through my links in the UK. I met people in London from the LGBT community who had links with Nigeria. And that's how I managed to get one or two links when I moved here. So you know somebody who knows somebody, that kind of thing. Yeah. But when I got here, most of the queer people I met were university students. And they were half my age, all in their 20s. And I was very curious to know how they met. I was asking the question and I found out that for a lot of them, it was Facebook. And then apps, hookup apps, a lot of the apps that I knew in the UK or US exist here, you know, Black Gay Chat or Adam for Adam, those days anyway. There were other South African hookup apps as well. Young people, especially, I think social media was the key connecting factor. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who go to boarding schools. Um, and I also uh, found out that people through boarding school, if they would have the experiences and then they would form connections there. So for young people now, I think that's the main way of connecting. Yeah, I agree. Social media, especially for people coming up now or coming of age now, in some ways it seems like it's a lot easier. But as you were sharing that, I came out in my, my late 20s we find a way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I was a teenager, there was nothing like social media and all that. So, so I didn't have the opportunities that young people have now. I was talking to an acquaintance like, yeah, in some ways it's easier, especially around, you know, physical contact, or that type of thing. But in some ways, this person kind of suggested that it kind of encourages us to go back into the closet because it makes it more hidden again where you don't have to go out. We can use the word discreet, mm-hmm. but it kind of pulls us back into the closet. That's what this person suggested with social media. Interesting, yeah. My way of finding connection with community was through the, the social venues. Yeah. Mostly in London, though. Gay bars and things like that. Now those things don't exist anymore, or they're, they're, they're disappearing, so... Uh, yeah, so you don't have the social venues, the social spaces, they tend to have disappeared. Yeah, and I think that's a loss of culture too. Yeah, we're attracted to the same gender, but as you just mentioned, there's, you know, the socializing, there's making friends, there's what makes us unique as, say, specifically as gay men, something that I've noticed in interviewing people from different parts of the world in different countries There is something very unique about gay men. It's nice to discover that when you meet people socially. But, you know, we still have parties and things like that. Yeah. (laughs) But it's different, yeah. Um, I found on YouTube a speech that you gave in 2010. It was at the vigil for uh, Ugandan activist David Kato. And it moved me, you know. I, I actually saw that documentary, Call Me Kuchu. Okay. You know, in your speech, you touched on LGBTQ plus citizens leaving their home country. I wanted to ask you about that because I I know 
there are individuals that decide to leave their country of origin, maybe because of safety. But you mentioned that David said that, you know, it's important to stay within our home countries to, mm-hmm. to fight. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I met David Cato, actually it was like an AIDS conference in Senegal that was in 2008. You know, we met in a march, we had a march, like a rally. Mm-hmm. It was the AIDS conference and I met him and I found out about the work he was doing. I was really inspired by him. But I also knew that even for myself, my place was on the continent. I really could relate to, to what he was doing. He died, but one of his best friends at the time is called Frank Mugisha. When David Kato died, I was in New York. I was working for the United Nations. So that speech what, that you saw, mm-hmm. his friend, Frank Mugisha, was in New York. And people were telling him, don't go back to Uganda because you might be killed. And he said, no, I'm going. I have to go. And I totally understood Frank as well. Like, I have to go. Of course, it can be hell for a lot of people and they want to leave the continent to be free elsewhere. But on the other hand, yeah, it's the homeland. You know, it's okay, I belong here. I'm going to stay here and try to make a difference here. I could relate to what he was saying. And I think that's what I was trying to express in that speech. We get a lot of publicity now about Europe where it's easier, at least legally, to be an out gay person, but we forget that even in these countries, it was very dangerous at one time. So hearing that you and David and others are, to me, this is awesome bravery that you're saying, this is our home. So for me, it's like, wow, you're the people that lead the way. You're the people who make it possible for me to do what I'm doing now. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's not a choice. It's just realization that Home is where the heart is, and sometimes it's just better to be home and to try and make a difference as much as we can. Also in that speech, you talked about the twin evils. I like the way you described that, the twin evils of racism and homophobia. But I wanted to ask for you, what tools do you use personally and professionally to combat or to deal with those two challenges? Mm, Okay, actually, it's London that opened my eyes to the twin evils. I love London for one thing. It's it's really uh, changed me in lots of ways. A lot of my political awareness came from my experiences in London. That's where I met the first LGBT activists. That's where I met the first Black Pan-African activists who really opened my eyes. So being part of the two minorities, Black and queer, I also met great people again a long time ago. They're still there. My shout out to great people like Dennis Carney, Robert Berkeley, Ajamu. These are people I met in workshops for Black queer people. I was hearing from them what they were going through, racism in the UK. I was hearing from them their experiences, and I was hearing how they constantly had to fight to be recognized as Black and then fight to be recognized as queer. So some of the tools we used were sometimes really simple tools. So for example, a lot of people lacked role models. And I remember how at some point we started a project just to document who were the black queer role models in the UK. Mm -hmm. I remember two booklets that were produced. And I remember how we started a community awards, recognized people who are both black and queer and 
just campaigning around the awards, you know, just making their experiences known to other people. Uh, things have changed now. Now we have like bigger events in, in London trying to do exactly that, to reward people who have been role models from the community. Of course, fighting on the race front in the UK is quite a challenge because, you know, we use the term black, but we know that within the term black, there are differences, right. even cultural differences. Some people are of Caribbean origin, some people are of African origin, and cultural connections are not obvious. So we did things like fighting for African music to be heard in gay clubs, you know, because there was a time where it was like, no, 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 you can't have this kind of music here. Hmm. Now you have African music everywhere. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't the case 20 years ago, you know. So it was just little things like fighting on the cultural front, rewarding the role models and giving visibility to the role models that were there. We're also sharing our own experiences. So there were lots of workshops where you just share how discrimination affects you and what you do on your own personal level to confront discrimination. So I have friends who are still in London. We had a project called Club Afrique. So basically we went to a gay club in London and told them, look, we want to have every Wednesday night, we want to have African music, African guys, and African food in a gay club. So of course we had rejection from many clubs, but eventually we found one club that agreed to do it. You just do little things like that. And then you do the same in the black community like, to try and challenge homophobia as well. I was doing HIV work in the UK within the black community and the work was so heterosexual. Like everything was focused on heterosexual men. So I tried to challenge that notion that all African men are not heterosexual. And I did that by coming out. <laughs> hmm. My first job in London was African men's health promotion officer. So I had a job doing HIV health promotion with African men. But most of my audiences thought, oh, you're working for African heterosexual men. So I was doing the heterosexual thing for about a year. But in the second year, I said, no, there are men who have different needs. And I had to prove it to them by coming out. Yeah, so the two evils, yes, but you have to fight on both fronts and you have to use your own resources, use others. It's great. I mean, these were great experiences. Um, and I'm still using a lot of these experiences in my work today. I hear the importance of history, knowing one's history and of storytelling. They kind of are intertwined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could say for myself as a Black American that most of us in America and the U.S. are Eurocentric. And we're Eurocentric because we only know mainly European history. We don't know African history. We don't know other continents, their history. You just reinforce that, you know, it's important to know who we are. And, and I like, too, that you talk about the diversity and culture, because I agree. One of the challenges I have internally, but I try to find a way to let people know, stop looking at us as one flat color. Mm -hmm. If you describe a, a quote unquote white guy, so, uh, what is he? He's European. The next question would be, well, what countries he's from? But people are very okay with saying, oh, he's African. And then when you say, well, what country? Like, I don't know, he's African. It's like, that means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's true. That's true. I don't have the credentials that you have, but I love that you share that, you know, it's important to know these things and to promote them. Definitely. And I keep learning. I mean, I learn every day. 
Nigeria is my mother's country, and I must admit, I moved here partly because I didn't really know my mother's country. It's amazing. I'm learning every single day the history, the diversity, the complexity. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, just Nigerian food alone. I mean, I've been here 10 years and I still don't know a lot. There's a different cuisine in every part of the country. You can spend your life just discovering the food alone. You know, it's uh, incredible. Do you have a favorite cuisine or dish, Nigerian? Oh, yes. My favorite is definitely from my mother's town. Uh My mother is from a town called Calabar, which is on the border with Cameroon. And there's a a sauce called Edikai Kong. It's just a vegetable, green vegetable soup, and it's it's incredibly delicious. Uh, it goes with crayfish, and people eat snails here. Okay. Snails. Like the French. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to describe. You just have to try it. So when you are not healing the world or educating us on how to be our best selves, what do you do to wind down, or what do you do for leisure? Mm, good question. I, I like having friends around. Either having indoor parties or pool parties or going to the beach. Yeah, last night we went out to a bar by the beach. I discovered house music when I was in New York. Oh, I love house music. <laughs> when I came back 10 years ago, nobody knew what it was. In Nigeria? Yeah, so I had to do my research and I found one or two spots. And there's one of them. I went there last night. okay oh my god my heart is racing a friend of mine who was a music writer he was like you need to discover house music now I'm like oh my god this is so spiritual I love it (laughs) yes (laughs) so I know you travel for work but do you travel for leisure or do you like to travel I love to travel oh my god I travel mostly for work now I work freelance I get invited to countries around the continent and I love it. Like I may be going to Mali this month and then next month I have no idea where I will be going, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because usually I get invited for short gigs, three weeks. For the last 10 years, I've been around the continent, at least 17 or 18 countries. Wow. Yeah. Still going. Yeah. I'm eager to know more countries. What a nice perk to have. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I love it. I love it. One of my early guests, his father, he's Swedish through his mother, but his father's from Mali. Wow. (laughs) Interesting combination. Uh, So when you said Mali, I was like, oh, I've heard that the second time. (laughs) (laughs) So as an LGBT activist and medical professional, what are one or two ways that you remain positive and focused in who you are and what you do? I think I'm at a good place now. There used to be a time when I was convinced that I could not live in homophobic countries. But I also realized that homophobia is one thing, but there is more. There's so much more to gain from living on the continent. Okay, okay. And I love working freelance because I get to choose what I'm working on, as opposed to being part of an organization and having work plans dictated to me. I'm enjoying it. So far, so good. Well, you've definitely reignited my desire to travel to the continent and to see Nigeria and other countries. West Africa, you know, for me, for a historical standpoint, knowing what I know of the peoples that were brought to North America and the Caribbean, I know that some of my lineage comes from there. So I definitely, in talking to you, it's like, oh, I need to go. (laughs) You're still young. You're still young. (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, it's good to put it on your plans. Uh, when I was in uh, New York, I used to have people saying, oh, I've been trying to go to Africa for the last 20 years. And I'm like, it's only seven hours away from New York. You know, That's not <laughs> make fun. it sound so complicated. I used to tell people, Delta Airlines flies from New York to Dakar literally every day. And it's only seven hours. <laughs> I used New York and Dakar because it's true. It's the shortest route to go to Africa. Of course, if you want to go to Johannesburg, it's a longer journey. And, and a lot of people are terrified to travel for 15, 16 hours. Yeah. So I always tell them, okay, Dakar. Dakar is only seven hours away. Well, that's all I have. Did you have anything that you would like to add? I'm just grateful for the opportunity. I think it was going to say Sean Wallace mm -hmm. that recommended that I contact you. And I'm really glad I did because... I'm trying to promote awareness of the Black diaspora throughout the world and specifically on the continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, this is an education. You know, as I said earlier, I get excited because I'm like, okay, there's another country I need to put an X on that I need to visit. Oh, yes. I remember Sean Wallace. And I particularly remember his extraordinary mother, a Jamaican woman who decided to move to the UK and then to Nigeria and then who decided to move all her children to Nigeria. Uh, his mother is extraordinary. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, I actually was fortunate to meet him when I was in London. I was really excited about that. I mean, that's one of the things I was saying earlier about living in London and meeting what I call Black Pan-Africanists. And they're not necessarily African. I mean, a lot of them were Caribbean people who loved Africa so much, even more than us. <laughs> <laughs> and who were just passionate about the continent and everything African. So I thank London for that. I definitely feel there's a strong cultural connection to the continent. And I think it's because uh, at least my awareness of the Caribbean, they were not dissected in the same way that us and that came to the America. Yeah, I had a chance to visit the Caribbean too. I got to discover African culture by being in, in New York, by visiting Jamaica, by visiting Trinidad. And that's another thing that people don't understand is that the history of people who have been deported means that you would see things in the black diaspora of New York that you may never see in West Africa, never. Hmm. So basically that's the extraordinary thing about how people have preserved aspects of religion and culture that are still live in let's say Jamaica, Dominican Republic, or New York, and in a way that you would not see. So you may be looking for certain things that you've seen in New York here in Nigeria, and people will say, oh, this religion comes from Nigeria, and you come to Nigeria and you don't see it. Because there's an element of loss. A lot of people are trying to be good Muslims and good Christians here in Nigeria. So a lot of the, for example, African traditional religions are not visible. You really have to do your research because even Africans are trying to bury those things because of the big two. I call them the big two, the, you know, Islam and Christianity. In New York, I was living next to a Santeria shop, which is like a Cuban shop that sold religious artifacts and things to do with Yoruba religion. And I knew nothing about Yoruba religion and learned it in New York. So that's the magic about these things. There's a connection to Africa, yes, but a lot of it is already in the diaspora in Miami, in New York, and you discover things that 
you would not even see here in Nigeria. Visually, it's like I see through these traumas that these people brought with them little stones or pebbles that they were able to keep. Yeah. Yep. Do you have a social media presence? Where can we find you online? I'm on Twitter, at Shake Eteka, Twitter, Instagram. I'm not big on social media, but yeah, I have a presence there. I'll make sure to share those. And I wanted to say, I like the sound of your first name, Shake. The way you say it, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very common name. Not so much in Nigeria, but uh, in Senegal or Mali, a lot of people are called Sheikh. I don't think of myself as having children, but if, if it became a serious consideration, I was like, oh, there's one to put on the list. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.